Well, let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to springboard out of a simple passage of three verses that will allow us to do some exploration and pulling some scriptures from all over our Bibles together. We've been preaching through, studying through the book of Ephesians for, I don't know, the better part of three years now. And uh, it's been a blessing, but we've come to the final paragraph. There's some greeting and some uh, kind of personal things that he does at the end, but this is the final theological paragraph that begins with the word in verse 10, finally. But what he addresses in this subject, in this last paragraph, is our battle as believers against spiritual forces in the world, namely against the devil and demons. Let me read those three verses for you. Finally, brethren, Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Four, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We're supposed to be instructed, we are instructed rather, so that we're equipped to stand firm against the schemes of who? The devil. In order to understand this, these three verses and the paragraph that follows explaining the full armor of God, it's important that we understand something, and that is, who is the devil? And then the next verse in verse 12 talks about different categories of demons. So just a little plan for what we're going to be doing this week and in the coming weeks. Today we're going to talk about the devil, a biblical biography, the Bible's biography of the devil. It's only going to be introductory. We're not going to say everything that we can say. In fact, studying this passage will allow us to say things and understand things about the enemy that will be revealed when we get to those verses. But we need to understand the devil and who he is and who he's not what he does and what he can't do. Then our next study, we're going to study demons. Who are demons? Can, can you be possessed by a demon? What does possession mean? What does it all mean to us? So this week on Satan, in our next study, we're going to look at demons, and then we're going to dive into the verses so that when we talk about our, our struggle against the devil and demons will know exactly who we're talking about. Is that fair? So now you have a little bit of a plan on what we're going to do. And we're going to spend a few months in the believer's armor because it's that important to understand our, our armor and our weapon in spiritual warfare. One of my fondest memories growing up was my dad's affection to a certain commentator. In fact, our days would be oftentimes arranged around listening to this man on the radio. The famed commentator, Paul Harvey. As soon as I say that, I know who knows who Paul Harvey is, who, who Paul Harvey is and I know who don't. Who does not know, know who Paul Harvey is? Yeah, well, just trust us. Um, he was a, a, a gentleman, maybe the best voice ever in the history of broadcasting, for the record. Um, and he would have commentaries, usually just a couple minutes long, where he would give uh, 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 different reads on, on cultural issues, on moral issues, just 
fantastic. I'm a big Paul Harvey fan. Uh, I'm pretty confident he knew the Lord and is with him now. But in 1965, almost 60 years ago, think about this, almost 60 years ago, keep that in your mind, Paul Harvey broadcasted a piece entitled, If I Were the Devil. At the time, there was a lot of pushback on this small commentary that he made saying he was outrageously overstating the case. I want to read you this piece. It just takes a couple minutes. 60 years old. 1965, he wrote this. If I were the devil. He says, if I were the prince of darkness, I would want to engulf the whole world in darkness. And I'd have a third of its real estate, four-fifths of its population, but I wouldn't be happy until I had seized the ripest apple on the tree, the... So I'd set about however necessary to take over the United States. I'd subvert the churches first. I'd begin with a campaign of whispers. With the wisdom of a serpent, I would whisper as I whispered to Eve, do as you please. To the young, I would whisper, the Bible is a myth. I would convince them that man created God instead of the other way around. I would confide that what's bad is good. And what's good is bad. No, I'm sorry, what's good is square. Remember that word? And the old I would teach to pray after me. Our Father, which art in Washington. And then I'd I'd get organized. I would educate authors in how to make lurid literature exciting so that anything else would appear dull and uninteresting. I'd threaten TV with dirtier movies and vice versa. I'd peddle narcotics to whom I could. I'd sell alcohol to ladies and gentlemen of distinction. I would tranquilize tranquilize the rest with pills. If I were the devil, I'd soon have families at war with themselves, churches at war with themselves, nations at war with themselves, until each in its turn was consumed. And with promises of higher ratings, I'd have mesmerizing media fanning the flames, If I were the devil, I would encourage schools to refine young intellects, but neglect to discipline emotions. Just let those run wild until before you knew it, you'd have to, you'd have drug sniffing dogs and metal detectors at every schoolhouse door. This is 1965. Within a decade, I would have the prisons overflowing. I'd have judges promoting pornography. Soon I would evict God from the courthouse, then from the schoolhouse, and then from the houses of Congress. And in his own churches, I would substitute psychology for religion and defy science. I would lure priests and pastors into misusing boys and girls and church money. If I were the devil, I'd make the symbols of Easter an egg and the symbol of Christmas a bottle. If I were the devil, I would take from those who have and give to those who want until I had killed the incentive of the ambitious. And what do you bet? I could get whole states to promote gambling as a way to get rich. I would caution against extremes and hard work and patriotism and moral conduct. I would convince the young that marriage is old-fashioned and swinging is more fun than what you see on TV is the way to be. And thus, I would undress you 
in public. And I could lure you into bed with diseases for which there is no cure. In other words, if I were the devil, I'd just keep right on doing what he's doing. Paul Harvey, good day. End quote. It's hard to hear that and think that it was written in 1965. How are we to think about the devil? What are we to think about the devil? What about demons? What do they do? What can they do? What will they do? As a personal testimony, there were two significant times in my life that I became very concerned about the devil and demons, not understanding that I didn't understand who they were and what they did. The first was when I was in junior high and the movie The Exorcist came out. I never saw the movie. Praise God I didn't. But I saw a trailer that sent me into a high-speed wobble. In fact, all I knew was that there was this demon doing something to this girl and the bed shook. And so I slept on the floor for weeks The next time that I had a significant crisis of understanding about the demonic was in 1986 when everyone was reading and then I finally read a book by Frank Peretti called This Present Darkness. It was a compelling fictional, understand the word fictional, fictional account of the workings of demons and angels. And I, I was troubled by that because at the end of the book, without giving too much away. I guess it's old enough that I can give it away. Um, at the end of the book, if, if the Christian prayed, the angels won in their battle against the demons. But the Christian stopped praying, the demons won in their battle against the angels. And you got to ask, who's sovereign in that equation? Who's really in control? It was not a biblical or biblically accurate portrayal of the demonic, and it deepened my confusion. It wasn't until seminary and I studied the subject of Satan, demons, and angels in a, the in a theology class that I finally found stability and, and equilibrium from what the Word of God says about these creatures. They are creatures. They are created beings. So for the next few weeks, we're going to study this important doctrine in God's Word, who they are, how we respond. Why is this so important? Because Paul tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 2.11, we are not ignorant of Satan's schemes. Now the question is, is that true? Are we ignorant of the way the devil works? The schemes of the devil. I love the old King James, the wiles of the devil. The primary target of the devil is not the movie theater and horror films. The primary target of the devil is your mind, your thinking. Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11.3, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, that's the devil, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. It's about attacking the mind, attacking the thinking, teaching us to think wrong thoughts about good theology. Satan is always working to undermine God's truth. 
He works to get us to doubt whether God's word is true. He works to get us to be suspicious of God's character. Is he really good? Does he really care? This is why the greatest attempts are to attack our understanding, our confidence in the work of Christ and in the gospel itself. I like what David Garland writes. Paul's concluding greeting in Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. May seem ironic, a God of peace crushing an enemy, but Satan is the enemy of peace. He is defeated by reconciliation. Christian love and charity neutralize all of Satan's power over us and serve as an invisible protective shield, end quote. Peter was clear. Peter, the one who was told by the Lord, get behind me, Satan. Peter said in 1 Peter 5, 8, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but resist him. So, I believe in the devil. Do you? Because he believes in you. He knows about you. It's urgent that we understand, according to Paul's testimony, that we are in a fight against the devil. We are in a fight against the demonic realm. In fact, Christians face what I would call a bilateral threat in our thinking about the level. The first is the danger of overestimating his power. Overestimating demonic power. I will never forget where I was standing in college when I was sneezing and a girl told me that if I had time, she would cast out the demon of post-nasal drip out of my body. So I said, please, go ahead. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> Finding a devil and a demon everywhere, overestimating. But there's also the other side, which is underestimating Satan, underestimating his power, underestimating demonic forces, and pretending as if they don't exist. We would do well to heed the words of John Blanchard who writes, we are opposed by a living, intelligent, resourceful, and cunning enemy who can outlive the oldest Christian, outwork the busiest, outflight the strongest, and out, outfight the strongest, and outwit the wisest, end quote. You ever thought about the fact that the devil and the demons, at least as far as we know in Scripture, they, they don't need to sleep. They don't die. They have thousands of years of observation on how temptation works and how temptation scores its points and how to make us sin. Satan is not out to try to scare you. He's out to try to make you sin. Satan is not out to show you that he is a evil guy with a pitchfork and horns. He wants to make you believe he is an angel of light. He's a counterfeiter. We'll see more of that in a moment. We would do well to remember the third verse of Martin Luther's, a mighty fortress is our God. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble, what? Not for him. His rage we can endure, 
For lo, his doom is sure. One, I love this phrase, one little word shall fail him. With one word from the mouth of Christ in Revelation 20, he will be sent into eternal destruction. So here in Ephesians, back to our text, chapter 6, verses 10 to 18, Paul provides the most comprehensive and explicit instruction for how a believer is to interact with and combat the devil and demons in the Bible. We're going to take our time working through this passage because there's so much confusion that's believed, so much error that's embraced about this doctrine of spiritual warfare. And again, before we dive into the details of the text, we're going to look at Satan today, demons next time, and then we'll take what we learn about those, those uh, creatures and move into our text. So for today, very high level, very quick introductory thoughts about Satan we're going to approach by answering eight questions. Eight questions. You can ask a lot more, you can ask a few less, but this will help us. Eight introductory questions about Satan. Eight introductory questions about Satan. And these are questions that you ought to have an answer for. The first is this, and it'll be the shortest. Is Satan real? Yes, number two. No, we'll, we'll do a little bit more than that. He, uh, yes, he's real, and we know that because in the third chapter of the Bible, Moses talks about Satan. He was there tempting Eve. So God himself, writing through Moses, the first five books of the Bible, gets three chapters in, just a few verses in, and we're already introduced to the devil. Not only that, in Matthew 4, Jesus had 40 days of temptation with the devil in the wilderness. So God through Moses and the Spirit of God through the Holy Scriptures and the Lord Jesus himself affirm the existence of the devil. He is real. Do you believe it? That's an important question to start with. Number two, who is this beast? Who is Satan? I'll spend a few minutes here. According to Job 38, verses 6 and 7, God created angels as the first issue of his creation. It's interesting that in relation to men, these created spirit beings currently have great power. That's according to 2 Peter 2.11. But elect angels minister on behalf of elect people. And one day, <laughs> this is for another time, but one day believers will judge the angels, according to 1 Corinthians 6.3. So when you study these beings, these angelic creatures in the Bible, there quickly emerges two morally distinctive categories of angels, holy or elect angels and fallen angels or demons. As we'll see in the coming weeks, there also seems to be various, various hierarchies within the angelic structure. There's archangels like Michael and Jude 9. There's special attendants in Genesis 3.24. There's designations in series like in Colossians 1 and here in our text in Ephesians where there seems to be designations of hierarchy of demons who report to each other. The head of all of the fallen angels is Satan. So let me say it as clear as I can. Satan is merely a fallen angel. The word Satan is the most prevalent term used for him. It's used 53 times in 47 verses in the Bible. It primarily means the adversary, the enemy, the one who withstands. 
Satan is seen to be the opponent of God, the opponent of believers, and the opponent of all that's right and wrong, right and good and moral. It's the name most often attached to him in Scripture. But there's a few others, and I, I'm going to go fast, so just try to hang on a little bit here. He's also called the devil, Diablos, which means slanderer, defamer. Clearly spelled out, spelled out in 1 Peter 5, 8, where he's called our adversary. He's also called the serpent. Genesis 3, he was the serpent. Romans 16, 20, he's the serpent. Revelation 12, 9, the serpent. This name for Satan looks back to the account of Genesis 3, the tempter and the temptation that he provided, and it reminds us that he is crafty and cunning. He's also called the dragon in Revelation 12, 9 and 20 verse 2. This word stresses the cruel, vicious, bloodthirsty character of our enemy. He's called Abaddon or Apollyon, the destroyer in Revelation 9:11. He's called Belial in 2 Corinthians 6:15. That's a name that simply means the worthless and wicked one. He's called Beelzebul in Matthew 12:24. When the Pharisees heard that, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. They called Jesus a loyal Satanist. When Jesus cast out the demons, the Pharisees declared that he couldn't do that unless he was the chief of the demons. He's called the evil one in Matthew 13, 1 John 5, 19. The evil one. This talks about his ugly and useless pursuits that he has for intentions he has for us, the injurious and destructive nature of his work. He's the tempter in Matthew 4, 3. He tempted Jesus to sin. He tempted Eve. He continues to tempt. He's called the ruler or the prince in Matthew 12 and in John 12 and in Ephesians 2. That designation points to Satan as the head of the demonic hosts the prince of the power of the air. He's the one who is working in the worldview of this godless age. He's actually called the God of this age in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He's called the accuser in Zechariah 3.1 and Revelation 12.10. Fitting title because night and day he's working at accusing believers in our heart and our conscience, accusing believers in our reputation, and he's always accusing God. He's called the adversary in 1 Peter 5, 8, the deceiver in Revelation 12, 9, the enemy in Matthew 12, 13, 25. In John 8, 44, Jesus calls him a murderer from the beginning. And in the same passage, he calls him the father of lies. We already read 1 Peter says, in chapter 5, verse 8, he's a roaring lion, lion seeking whom he may devour. But all of that, all of that really functions under this designation. In 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, Paul says, he always comes as an angel of light. He comes as an angel of light. We'll understand that more in just a moment when we look at, at his work. You say, what about Lucifer? Well, let me answer that in our next question. Where does Satan come from? 
Where did Satan come from? We don't know exactly how or when Satan rebelled against God when the angels who fell with him and became demons fell. It was obviously before the creation because they show up on, or at least Satan shows up the first week of the creation to introduce himself to Adam and Eve. At least I think it was the first week. It doesn't seem very long. But the two texts most often cited to account for Satan's origin, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, um, is where we get the word Lucifer, which was the King James, this star of the morning or morning star in, in the New American Standard. Listen, if, if, if you've grown up believing that that's a, a, an explanation of Satan's origin, you're not going to get in theological trouble uh, for that. But the more I've studied that over the years, I think it's probably talking about the king of Babylon and the king of Tyre. And it may be an illusion or an illustration of Satan, but it's hard to kind of twist those into being completely about Satan. That's where Lucifer is named, but that's a King James-ism. So where did Satan come from? Before the foundation of the world, God our world, God created him, and he shows up in the creation. So he's a creature, He's only an angel. He is a creature. What is Satan like? As a creature, what is he like? Number four, Satan is not eternal. He's a creature. He is a created being. Satan is not all-powerful. He's not the bad God, if that makes sense. Satan is not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. How about this? Satan does not run hell that's not his domain. He is not the chief captain of hell. Satan will be the chief captive of hell, Revelation 20 says. So remember, he can only be one place at one time. I don't want to upset anyone's esteem. And Let me say this first. When we talk about Satan, that's often emblematic of his forces, his demons, his kingdom. And it's okay to talk about Satan in that metaphorical sense. But it's unlikely that any of us have drawn the presence of Satan. He can only be one place at one time. And I think he's in bigger places trying to do bigger things than make us say something bad when we slam our finger with the hammer. He may. I don't know. He, he's not omnipresent. He might be fast. However, he is indescribably powerful and unspeakably evil, as we'll see from the armor that we're going to put on in the next few weeks. That's what he's like. He's a bad being, but he's not like God. He's not the bad God. Super important to remember. Number five, what can Satan do? What are his limitations? Now, in order to understand this, I, I want to look at Genesis chapter 3 for just a moment. We're going to come back to this passage several times in the course of our study. Now, the serpent, Genesis 3, 1, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. What does Satan do? What can Satan do? I don't know if you know this, but did you know that Satan, Satan is the mouthpiece for the first question ever recorded in the Bible. First question we find in the Bible is in Genesis 3.1. 
The serpent said to the woman, Indeed, has God said? Did God really say you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Satan's primary aim is your mind, as I said. And nowhere is he more powerful than getting you to doubt what God has said then and now. Has God really said? Eve is cunning, is, is connived into believing him. And I think you know this, but Adam was standing there the whole time. How do you know that? When the woman saw, verse 6, that the tree was good for food, it was delight to the eyes, the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband, what's the next two words say? With her. And he ate. He was right there. What does Satan do? He wants us to doubt God's word and doubt God's character. If he does that, he wins every other battle. That's the first domino. Now, right now, at this point in history, he roams about the earth. His ultimate doom is guaranteed by the finished work of Christ. We know that. We know he will be cast down to the earth in the great tribulation, have full reign on the earth in Revelation 12, 7 to 12. Then he'll be incarcerated during the millennial kingdom reign of the thousand years in Revelation 20, 1 to 3. Then he'll be released temporarily, the final expression of rebellion in Revelation 27 and 8. And then he and the demons, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, will be permanently consigned to the lake of fire. The New Testament talks about his work as schemes or wiles or devices of the devil. We're going to discover so much more about his schemes because it's, it's easy to see what his schemes are by the armor that Paul gives us to fight those schemes. So we'll, we'll go through that verse by verse in the coming weeks. But for now, we can observe a few of his schemes ever to be aware of. He disguises. Satan never comes as Satan. He comes as an angel of light. He's a counterfeiter. Counterfeiters make their money look as much like the real as possible. Satan comes preaching another Jesus, a different gospel, another spirit. In other words, he uses our biblical terms and his dictionary. He deceives. He's the father of lies, John 8, 44 says. He wants you to believe that evil is good and good is evil. He distracts by putting attention on self rather than on Christ. He distorts. He's a master eisegete. Eisegete means you put a meaning in a verse that's not the true meaning. His main attack is by using God's word in a distorted, out-of-context, incomplete, augmented, and diminished way. Puritan William Jenkin writes, The devil shapes himself into the fashions of all men. Now, this is a little bit King James English, but follow him. If he meet with a proud man or a prodigal man, then he makes himself a flatterer. If with a covetous man, he comes with a, with a reward in his hand. 
He has an apple for Eve, a grape for Noah, a change of raiment for Gehazi, a bag for Judas, a bag of money. He can dish out his meat for all pallets. He has a last to fit every shoe. He has something to please all conditions. Trust me when I say he, and when we talk about him, we mean the demonic. They, they know your weaknesses, do you? They know your vulnerabilities, do you? John Owen said, labor to know what frame and temper you are of, what spirit you are of, what associates in your heart Satan has. What associates in my heart does Satan tap on the shoulder to use for his own advancement? Just a little aside, and we'll come back to this when we talk about the shield of faith. Satan also uses the fear of death as a significant tool in his hand. Hebrews 2, verse 14, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same, became flesh and blood, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Now we know that God is the one who raises up and who pulls down, that God is the one who gives birth, and God is the one who brings death. How can he say the devil has the power of death? He tells us in the next phrase what he means by that. And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. We'll come back to this, but it's amazing how much of our living and motivation and thinking is motivated by the fear of death. Isn't it? And Christ comes to release us from that so that Paul can say, for to me, live as Christ, die, much better, it's gain. Because he had been delivered from the fear of death. This is why the gospel is the most powerful munition we possess in the battle against the devil. What is Satan's future? We've already said it. Revelation 20, verse 10, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. As we said and have as we sang often, though this world with devils filled, Luther said, what should threaten to undo us, we will not fear God as willed as truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him his rage. We can't endure for lo, his doom, his doom is certain, is sure. The last two questions are going to be very short because we're going to answer those in the coming weeks. Who are Satan's co-workers? The short answer is demons. We're going to have a whole sermon devoted to who demons are, what demon possession was and is, and can it happen, and who can it happen to, and we're going to answer some of those questions. But his co-workers are demons. Demons are real. Not trying to freak anybody out. I believe there are demons in this room with us right now. And also angels. And for certain, our Lord himself. Number eight, how should Christians respond to Satan? That's called Ephesians 6, 10 to 18. 
So we're going to look into this much more carefully. How should we respond to Satan? And first of all, let me just say this. Contrary to what many people would have us believe, we are nowhere told to engage Satan ever verbally, to talk to him. We shouldn't bind him or try to cast him anywhere. We're not told to do that. I'll never forget being in a golf cart with someone when I was uh, in college, and they wanted to pray for me. And they said, can I pray for you? And I said, sure. He said, and the first thing they said was, Satan, I bind you. I said, who are you praying to? And it doesn't make sense. We'll talk about this more. Bind means to tie up. Do you mean that you just tied up Satan from doing anything since he's a local entity from doing anything all over the planet? And for how long and how does he get loose? It, it doesn't make any sense. We're not to be so presumptuous as to seek to engage him. Nowhere in Ephesians 6, 10 to 18 does it say, talk to the devil. It says, apply the normal spiritual disciplines of Christian living. Our call is to be aware of his methods, 2 Corinthians 2, 11, to stand defensively in the provisions of God, Ephesians 6, 10 to 18, and to resist, not engage him in battle, but resist him in faith. That's what James and Peter tell us. Resist the devil. James says in James 4, 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So, it's a little bit, not a lot. We're going to say a lot more about the devil as we go through this. This is just introductory. Next week, we're going to talk about, next session, rather, we're going to talk about our, uh, our foes who are enemies in demons. But Paul gives us instruction in the passage before us in Ephesians 6 to stand firm in the strength of the Lord, to put on the full armor of God with which we will be able to win the battle against the devil. Let me say it again. Satan is not out to scare you. He's out to deceive you, to trick you into believing bad theology about your good God. 2 Corinthians 4 Paul talks about unbelievers and he says, unbelievers in whose case the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Satan's primary goal is to keep you from worshiping Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life. Puritan Thomas Adams said this, Let us watch Satan, for he watches us. There is no corporeal enemy, fleshly enemy, but a man naturally fears the spiritual foe appears less terrible because we are less sensible of him. Great conquerors have been chronicled for victories and extension of their kingdoms. Satan is beyond them all. Saul has slain his thousands, David his ten thousands, but Satan his millions. He that fights with an enemy whom nothing but blood can pacify will give him no advantage. I think it's fair to say that 
perhaps the greatest advantage we can give Satan is to pay him no attention at all. Paul's going to teach us in this coming paragraph, here is how to engage spiritual warfare with the enemy. And it's going to surprise you how simple it is. It's by applying the basic disciplines of the Christian life. And then you'll be able to resist. If he's out to try to keep us from believing the gospel, have you believed him? Or do you believe the gospel? How do you evaluate right and wrong, moral and immoral? What's your standard? The gospel informs that, or Satan informs that. We studied back, and we will be here again in Ephesians 2, that he is behind the worldview of our day. Are you believing the worldviews that are being pumped into us continually? Or are you willing to stand firm against his schemes? Let me pray. Oh, Father, I'm, it's a little bit frustrating to have so much that we could say about these issues in so little time. And uh, I just beg that your grace will take these introductory thoughts and give us a better understanding of our enemy so we can have better preparation to put on your armor to face what's after us. Give grace to any who are wrestling with whether or not they believe the good news of the gospel. Will you please convict hearts that your son came into the world, God in flesh, to pay for the sins of those who believe by dying for them on a cruel, cruel Roman cross, rising from the dead and offering hope and eternal life for those who believe. Break prideful resistance. Cure misunderstanding with truth. Visit souls with the gospel in this very moment. In Jesus' name, amen.